Amen. When we first went to Sudan in 1996, Jennifer, myself, Majid and Sarah and Amal and Aman were some of our first friends. And in fact, Majid was our mentor and Sarah and how to pray for Muslim people and also how to reach out to Arab Muslims. I remember one time Majid took me and a young man named Mujahid, an MBB, a Muslim background believer that Majid was discipling. And we went about an hour outside of Omdurman, out into the desert. And in this desert, there was a sheikh, a religious leader. He was a Sufi sheikh with all of his followers. And it was so interesting, we had to walk up respectfully. This man was sitting on a mat out in the Sahara Desert, and all of his Sufi followers were groveling in front of him. If one of them wanted to ask him a question, they would crawl up with their face on the dirt to ask questions. It was a very rustic scene. There were lanterns on the ground. It was uh, the wind blowing through the Saharan sands and stars are shining. And we were listening to this sheikh dispense wisdom to all of his followers, looking for opportunity that we could ask questions that would lead to gospel conversations. This young man that Majid was discipling named Mujahid had probably a little more zeal than knowledge. So as we're sitting around there with all of these Sufi disciples, he finally has an opportunity to ask a question to the sheikh. Do you remember what he asked? And he said, how do you know that Muhammad was a real prophet? That's what he asked this guy. The disciples got so mad, they jumped up, they knocked over the lanterns, they start shouting. The hair on the back of the neck of me and Majid goes up. We thought, this is it, we're dead, <laughs> we're going to heaven. We got thrown out of there, not very ceremoniously. So uh, I've had a lot of good experiences with Majid and Sarah, some more fruitful than others. But I'm thankful for, for them. Pastor, thank you for starting a ministry to Arabic-speaking peoples. Isn't our world amazing? God is bringing the nations to us. And we have great opportunity to reach out to them. Pam has been leading this effort for years here in the church and in the city. And we're so grateful. That is true. But it is also true that only about 3% of Christian resources globally, money and people, actually deploy to the nations where God is not worshipped as he should be. 97% of the world still doesn't have adequate access to the gospel. And so on this mission's morning, we're going to look at a scripture. Would you open to Matthew chapter 8? And at the end of our time together, as we traverse verses 18 through 34, I'm going to make an appeal for those who would follow Jesus to the ends of the earth, to the places where there are no churches and there are no Christians and there is no witness. But I want to do that in fairness to you by taking an honest look at what that will cost us. So would you turn to Matthew chapter 8 and we'll pick up the reading in verse 18. Matthew chapter 8 verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Verse 23, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. 
I'll refer to this later. You know the story, the great storm. They're afraid. They wake him up. He rebukes their little faith. They marvel that wind and sea obey him. Verse 28, when he'd come to the other side, they meet two demon-possessed men, exceedingly fierce. Verse 29, they cry out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Then you know that story. Jesus casts out those evil spirits. They go into the pigs. The pigs run off the cliff and drown in the sea. Those who are taking care of the pigs are alarmed. They report it in the city. Verse 33 and then verse 34. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. One of the saddest verses in scripture. And we will end with that this morning. Following Jesus, following Jesus, I want to ask four questions this morning to all who would say, maybe perhaps glibly, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Here are four questions we need to ask before we make that commitment. Number one, out of verse 20, are you willing to follow Jesus to nowhere? Are you willing to follow Jesus to nowhere? This man comes up to him. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, I have nowhere to lay my head. Are you willing to follow me in essence to nowhere? Jesus doesn't belong to this world. He wasn't at home here. And neither should we be. You see, as Jesus responds to this man, he says, in effect, there will always be a father to bury. There will always be another responsibility To be present in this world is to be responsible. There's always some need that must be met and should be met. And if you stay here in Omaha, if you stay here in Nebraska, if you stay here in your homeland, there will always be valuable and valued work to do. There will be noble and needed duties that must be done. And in that light, the call to follow Jesus to the nations is stunning because it's a call away from legitimate An important responsibility. It's a call away from activities that are definite and certain. And towards places and contexts and countries that are unfriendly and uncertain. At the end of the day, Jesus is saying, we're only truly free when we follow, not knowing where we will lay our head. Some of you might be familiar with the name Gladys Aylward. She was a poor Irish nurse. She felt called to go to China as a missionary, but she was so dim, she was so unimpressive that she flunked out of missionary training. It wasn't university, it wasn't college, it was just simple missions training. She couldn't even handle that, so she was dismissed. But she couldn't get away from the sense that God had called her to go to China, so she saved up all her money, took a train ride to work for a a British gentleman. His name was Youngblood. And at the end of that train ride, just to get to his house so she could save money to go to China, she only had two and a half pennies to her name. So she took out those pennies and she laid them on her Bible and she said to the Lord, here is my Bible. Here is all the money I have. Here is me. Find some way to use me, O Lord. She went down to the station to buy a boat ticket to China. She didn't have enough money for that. So she made an agreement to buy a train ticket across Europe 
And slowly by slowly, month after month, she saved enough money to buy a train ticket to China. The problem was it had to go through Russia. And Russia and China were at war. So at the end of the railroad line, when she's going to cross the Russian-Chinese border, bombs are bursting, soldiers are attacking, the train is shut down, she can't get into China, there's no train passage back, she can't stay at the war front. So the Russian soldiers make her walk back through the Siberian railroad track. It's winter, there's bears, there's wolves. She falls asleep right there in the forest. She almost freezes to death. A whole series of adventures. You can read her biography. She makes her way through miracles to Vladivostok where she's captured by a pimp. He wants to sell her into sexual slavery. She escapes from that. She gets to Japan. She gets to China. She takes a train to the end of the earth, climbs on a donkey, is carried up into the mountains where she begins her service. And God leads this poor little Irish maid into all kinds of adventures. If you've ever seen or heard of the Hollywood movie, The Inn of Eight Happinesses, it's the story of her life. She does things like becoming a foot inspector for the Mandarin, making sure that they don't bind the feet of the children. She intervenes in a prison massacre and brings peace and restoration. She takes in a hundred orphans. The Japanese invade China. They bomb her hotel around her. It crashes down on her head and they have to dig her out of the rubble. They have to flee from the Chinese. So she walks a hundred orphans over the mountains. She intervenes as some Japanese soldiers are raping Chinese women. They hit her with a rifle butt, knock her unconscious. She goes into a coma, but she goes through all of these adventures and gets the orphans to safety. At the end of that, she goes to Tibet, begins ministry to Buddhist monks. She begins work in a leper colony. She works in another prison reform ministry. And then she goes to the university. And at the university of about 500 students, she leads 200 of them to the Lord. Quite an amazing lady. Immediately that she does that, the communists take over in China. And they're upset that all of these students are following Jesus. And so they bring them before an inquisition. And they ask them if they will sign a pledge of allegiance to the Communist Party. But the 200 students that Gladys has led to the Lord refuse because they say we support Jesus Christ and no one else. The furious communists are not happy. So they call the other 300 students and they say harass these 200 Christian students for a month. At the end of that month, they call them all back again. Now, do you have allegiance to the Communist Party? Not only do all 200 Christians refuse, but some of the ones persecuting them also say, we no longer have allegiance to the Communist Party. So the communists get even more upset, and they assign another three-month period with 10 communists to every Christian student to attack them, to insult them, to mock them, to watch them, to separate them from one another. And they go through this intense period of persecution for three months. At the end of that, they call them all back together to the town square and all of the inhabitants gather to see what will happen. And so the inquisitors call the students one by one. And the first student that they call is a young girl who is 17 years old. She'd been under pressure for three months And this is what happens. The communist looks at her as Gladys stood in the square watching and asks, who do you support now? The girl spoke loudly and clearly. Sir, three months ago, I thought Jesus Christ was real and I thought the Bible was true. Now, after three months of your hatred, I know Jesus Christ is real and I know the Bible 
It's true. Of course, the official, white with rage, was so disturbed that he yelled to one of the soldiers on his left. The girl was pulled to the center of the town square. She was shoved to her knees. A sword was drawn and her head was lopped off. 17 years old. And then one by one, those communist inquisitors brought every one of those 200 students as Gladys watched and asked them the same question. And every one of those 200 students maintained their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of them had their head cut off. And Gladys watched all 200 of these Chinese students that she had discipled and led to the Lord one by one stand up for Jesus and as a consequence, lose their heads. She walked home. Gladys records that I thought, if they must die, let them not be afraid of death, but let there be a meaning, O God, in their dying. 200 young students follow Jesus essentially to nowhere. And their heads had nowhere to rest but that bloody courtyard. Are you sure you're willing to follow Jesus? It might lead you with Gladys to the backside of nowhere, to war zones, long walks through forests, to injustices, to discomforts, to bombs and attacks and abuse, to poverty. It might lead you to sickness. It might lead you to prison. It might lead you to becoming a refugee, to pain, to trial, which leads to the second question. And the second question is this. Are you willing to follow Jesus to trouble? Are you willing to follow Jesus to nowhere? Are you willing to follow Jesus to trouble? Verse 23 to 25 of our text in Matthew 8. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him and suddenly a great tempest arose and his disciples came to him saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Many of you will know the name Jim Elliott. You've probably heard the story in the 50s of those five missionaries who were martyred in Ecuador. Jim Elliott was married to Elizabeth Elliott, and before they were married, she was a Bible translator. Her work was destroyed multiple times. She marries Jim. He is martyred along with the four other men. And in 1996, she wrote an epilogue to the story, Through Gates of Splendor. And she was writing about the death of those five missionaries, saying, We know that time and again in the history of the Christian church, the blood of martyrs has been its seed. We are tempted... To assume a simple equation here. Five men died. This will mean X amount of Christians. Perhaps so. Perhaps not. God is God. I dethrone him in my heart. If I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. It is the same spirit that taunted. If thou be the son of God. Come down from the cross. There is unbelief. There is even rebellion in the attitude that says God has no right to do this to five men unless and we fill in the blank. Jesus says in John twelve twenty three, the hour at which God's glory was most brilliantly revealed was on the cross. Do we realize that when we glibly sing worship songs such as show us your glory in these air conditioned and comfortable chapels and churches across the nation? Do we realize that when we ask Jesus to show us his glory, we're actually asking for a revelation of the agonies of the cross? It was on the cross. It was in suffering and death 
When God the Father sent His Son to die, the devil did not send Jesus to the cross. It was the will of the Father. It pleased the Father to crush Him for your sake and mine. Do you realize when we sing and dance and lift our hands and talk about the glory of God, that the glory of God was most clearly manifest in suffering and death and the agony of a cross. And we have no right to tell sovereign God what He must do or not do with our suffering. Or with our pain. Or with our trouble. Because to follow Jesus is to follow Him to trouble. And He determines what are the results of that anguish. And that suffering. And that difficulty. Elizabeth Elliot goes on in one of her fictional works called No Graven Image. To say that if God always acted in the way we thought He should. If God only supported our plans. If God only did what we want. Then He's a God of our own creation. A counterfeit God. Such a God, she says, is really just a projection of our own wisdom and our own self. And if He does something we don't like, we tend to fire Him. Or in this age, we unfriend Him. As if He's some personal acquaintance. Or some insubordinate who's incompetent. Because He didn't work out. Like we wanted it to. Are you willing to follow Jesus to trouble? Even if you don't know what the fruit or the yield of your suffering is. Are you willing to follow Jesus if that means your spouse dies? Are you willing to follow Jesus on his cruciform terms? Are you willing to follow Jesus if you end up in a shallow grave with three bullets in your chest? Or if you end up like Jim Elliott with a spear in your side? floating bloated down a river or are you willing to follow Jesus with no guarantee that you will personally see the harvest you just get to be the seed that falls into the ground and dies somebody else comes after you to reap the work of your labor with no guarantee that you will see the fruit of your sacrifice on those terms are you still willing to follow Jesus we just heard a Sudanese believer his name is Yasser Maki who came to faith in Sudan and his family disowned him. Not only did they disown him, they had a funeral for him. They bought him a coffin. They took that coffin to a grave. They buried it. They erected the tombstone because their son was dead to him now that he followed Jesus. And Yasser told with emotion how he went and stood at the foot of his own grave and read his own tombstone and saw the death of his dreams and the death of his hopes for his family. Are you willing to stand at the grave of your dreams and your ambitions and your desires for your own life? Are you willing to read your own tombstone and say, I'm willing to follow Jesus to trouble and the advancement I had planned and the career that I had hoped for and the money and the comfort and the ease and the friends and to be surrounded by family until I retire and everything to go well. I'm willing to put that into the grave. I'm willing to follow Jesus to nowhere for the sake of His glory through the cross amongst all nations. You say you want to follow Jesus. Do you want to follow him to nowhere? And do you want to follow him to trouble? And thirdly, are you willing to follow Jesus to fearlessness? Verse 26, Jesus said to them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be? In the summer of this year, a bold young believer in North Africa, 19 years old, began to share his faith publicly. On social media, to friends, to his family. In this country that has less than 50 known believers in the whole country from the last 100 years. He stood up fearlessly for his faith. So public was his witness that he was followed and threatened by the Islamic militia. 
Sensing the net closing in around him, this young man made a video for broadcast. And this is what he said. Hello, I'm a Christian. If you're hearing these words, it means either I've been persecuted and disappeared or that I'm dead somewhere. This is a message to my brothers and sisters, to the Christian nation and to secret believers everywhere in the Islamic world. I died for Jesus. I died for saying the words of the gospel. I couldn't stop talking about Jesus everywhere because of what I felt and what I believe in. I'm probably with God now, and it sounds weird to say it, but don't let my blood go to waste. You, my brothers and sisters, you, secret believers in the Islamic world, get out there. Stop fearing. We never lose, he said. When you're with God, you never lose. If you die, you win. If they persecute you, you win. If you fly to another country, you win. You're winning anyway. Why are you afraid? Have some passion. Even Jesus said, the one who denies me, I'll deny before the Father. So you have to accept Jesus. I've been reduced in my movements in the country here. I'm being followed everywhere. Stop fearing, he said. He is here. God is here. God is everywhere. Two days after he made that statement, he was abducted by the militia. He was beaten for 20 days. They broke his ribs. They broke his sternum. They broke his clavicle. A rib punctured his lung. He knows what it means when he says, do not fear. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 11, the Lord asks of us, And whom have you been afraid or feared that you lied and not remembered me? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? There is only one way to be truly fearless. And that is to fear the Lord. We fear the Lord so we don't have to fear anyone else. Do you want to follow Jesus? One of the preconditions is that you respect him so highly that you don't fear anyone or anything else. When we fear man, we're afraid to open our mouth. When we fear God, we're afraid of the damage done to the lost if we do not open our mouth. When we fear man, we're afraid to go to dangerous places. When we fear God, we are afraid of the eternal pain the unreached will suffer if we do not go. When we fear man, we're afraid to send our children to the unreached. When we fear God, we're afraid of the consequences to the soul of our children if we do not send them. When we fear man, a multitude of terrors can incapacitate and limit us. When we fear God, nothing on earth can shake us. Nothing on earth can stop us. Nothing on earth can limit us. When we fear God, following Jesus means there has to be room in your heart for only one fear. The fear of God, which overcomes the fear of man. You want to follow Jesus? Are you willing him to follow him to nowhere? Are you willing to follow him to trouble? Are you willing to follow him to fearlessness? Let me ask a fourth question. Are you willing to follow Jesus to judgment? Now let me be very clear. There is one judge of all the earth and surely he shall do right. The scripture says we are not gods. He alone knows all the hearts of men. But there is a responsibility to proclaim the judgments of the Lord and to follow him in the truths for which he stands in our passage, chapter eight of Matthew, verse 28 through 32. Two demons meet Jesus and cry. Have you come to torment us before our time? Even evil knows who is king. In verse 29, these demons, 
recognize that judgment is coming. And in verse 31, they begin to beg. Even the demons know there's an appointed time for the king to come and judge. Have you forgotten that King Jesus is coming to judge? Don't forget that the New Testament is an interpretation of the Old Testament message. Adam fell and sin entered the world. God made covenant promises with Abraham, but Abraham's children were a mess. God brings his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, but Moses' flock quickly worships idols. God delivers through judges and kings, but the kings break the covenants and become wise in doing evil. The prophets lament the complete failure of man and began to look with hope towards the promised Messiah, and they proclaim a second exodus to come. The Messiah will come as king. He will not only deliver us from sin, he will eradicate it. He will eradicate death. He will eradicate despair and evil. Messiah will come to rule, reign, judge, and destroy all evil. He will exit us us from this broken world and enter us into the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. The Bible says this is our blessed hope. And when the New Testament talks about the day of the Lord or that day or that glorious day, when the New Testament references the kingdom, it is looking forward to that day, that glorious time when the king comes back to rule and reign and to judge the living and the dead. You might not like it, but that's the scripture. John Harrigan points it out this way. The first coming and the second coming of the Messiah are the two primary events of apostolic witness. God has appointed Jesus as judge in the eschatological lawsuit against humanity. And Jesus has called his disciples to testify as true witnesses in anticipation of that day. Allison E. Trites incisively summarized the same point this way. Jesus has a lawsuit with the world. His witnesses include John the Baptist, who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Remember in Luke chapter 3, when John begins his preaching, he says, repent, flee the wrath to come. His witnesses include the scriptures, the words and works of Christ, and later the witnesses of the apostles and the Holy Spirit. Mark 13 and Matthew 24 tell of the persecution to come. And the reason of that persecution is to bear witness before the nations so that the gospel of the kingdom can be preached throughout all the world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. What end? When the king comes to rule and reign and to judge. That is the end towards which world history is going. King Jesus is coming in power and glory with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth to judge the living and the dead. And the question is, are you, am I going to be ready on that day? And the more sobering question is, what about the nations? Who's going to warn them of the wrath to come? Who's going to tell them that there's a loving God, that the cross absorbed the wrath of God and they can come under protection. They can be protected from God by God and receive eternal life by his mercy. Who's going to tell the nations that Matthew 24 and 25 are all about apocalyptic eschatology that's just a fancy way of saying the end of human centered history when Jesus comes in power and glory to vindicate the righteous judge the wicked and set up his eternal throne brothers and sisters do you want to follow Jesus you must follow him as did all the prophets, 
by being incredibly unpopular. The missionary message is a prophetic message. It is not going to win you friends. The missionary has the difficult assignment of going into all the world to tell religions and cultures and tribes and tongues that they are wrong, that they are rebellious, that they're under the wrath of God, that the judge is coming to announce pending wrath. For the gospel, good news, only makes sense if we start with the bad news. There's an eternal king. This king, despite his tender mercies, has been offended. This king, despite his generosity, has been insulted. This king of all nations is coming in wrath to judge. Flee, O peoples of the earth. Flee the wrath to come. Repent, turn, beg for mercy. Run to this king. Throw yourself at his feet and beg. It's your only hope. Psalms 2, that wonderful missions passage. Ask of me and I'll give the nations. It's in the context of a king who's upset. And therefore the psalmist says, kiss the king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Reconcile yourself with the one that you have offended. The one you've rebelled against. The one that you've insulted. Because he's coming in wrath to judge. So kiss the son. Repent and be at peace with him. So that you will not be damned. That's our mission's message. You want to follow Jesus? It is an ongoing descent into unpopularity. For we must announce the judgment to come. And we must plead with arrogant and rebellious peoples to repent. And they're going to hate us for it. Because the disciple is not greater than the master. They hated Jesus. They're going to hate you. Are you willing to follow Jesus to judgment? Most Christians are not. Again, we're not the judge. He's the judge, but we must proclaim those judgments. And yet we no longer have the fortitude to do that. We've lost the courage to say, according to God, this is right and this is wrong. And yet, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to be that prophetic voice in our culture and amongst all the nations. Let me conclude by how this passage concludes in verse 34, the last of our text. Two demon-possessed are healed. And then the whole city comes out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, to me, one of the saddest clauses of Scripture, when they saw Jesus, when they saw that he'd healed two men from being demon-possessed, they begged him to depart from their region. They begged Jesus to leave when they saw right-minded men because they preferred their pigs. Some things have to go if you want Jesus to stay. Do you prefer your pigs? What are the things in your life and in your home and in your eyes and in your mind and in your heart that are pigs? If you want Jesus to stay, they have to go. You can't follow Jesus and keep your current status. You have to follow him to nowhere. You can't follow Jesus and live a protected life. You have to follow him to trouble. You can't follow Jesus and live in a sanitized castle. You have to follow him to places of terror, unmoved by demons or dragons. Because you fear God more than you fear fear. You can't follow Jesus and be popular. 
you have to follow him to judgment. It's no surprise that so few truly follow Jesus. Narrow indeed is the way that leads to life. More narrow by far is the path that leads to the nations. But there are men and women here today that God is calling to that path. You sense it, perhaps right now, maybe with some anxiety and some trembling. But even now in your heart, you sense that God's calling you and your family, despite all that means, to represent him as his spokesperson amongst the nations. That might mean Somalia. That might mean Afghanistan. That might mean northern India. That might mean Libya or Yemen or Syria or Mauritania or Bhutan or Turkmenistan, as closed and difficult as North Korea. But there's a stirring in you. You know you're inadequate. You know you follow with faltering steps. But you're saying there's a resonance in your spirit. Jesus, I'll follow you to nowhere. I'll follow you to trouble. I'll follow you, Lord Jesus, into unpopularity. I'll follow you, Lord, even when that means I will be severely judged by a non-understanding world. That's in your heart right now. You sense it. Jesus doesn't trick us. He lays out the realities. To follow him means to follow him to nowhere and to trouble and to fearlessness and to judgment. Is there anyone here having heard and wrestled with those disclaimers that come out of the scriptures who would say, yes, Lord, with fear and trembling, with sobriety and hope, knowing it will cost me all, I will follow you wherever you go. Would you close your eyes and would you bow your heads? Jesus still is asking and looking for those who will represent him where there are no churches, no Christians, no witness, no testimony. This is complementary to the things that must continue to go forth out of this church in this city. We bless those. But the reality is that 97% of our people and resources still go to cities like this. But what about those in Nepal, in Uzbekistan, in Saudi Arabia, in Western China, Kashmir, India? I do believe because the Lord has not yet come that He still wants to send men and women to the nations. If something has resounded in your heart this morning about following Jesus despite the difficulty, then you would like me to pray for you that the Lord would give you strength and resolve to follow him wherever he goes. Would you just in this moment stand and I want to pray for you. You would say, I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go.
Lord Jesus. We love you. You're such a joy. We've talked about costs this morning, but now I want to pray an absolute, bone-shaking, soul-satisfying joy that sitting or standing as we commit again to follow Jesus wherever he goes, that the deep satisfaction and blessing of obedience would permeate our beings and delight us that we are just saying yes to Jesus. So I pray for all who are responding. Would you now, Lord Jesus, give them the strength and the direction to obey and to take practical steps. Maybe that's in the home, the marketplace, the community. And I do pray that from this congregation and from those who stand, you would raise up men and women who will follow Jesus wherever the Lamb would go. I pray this in the name of the Lord. Amen. And may be seated as Pastor comes. There's two sides to the gospel. There's one side that we often preach and we love to shout about, and that's Jesus died for us. The other side of the gospel is we died with him. Paul put in these words, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 1986, Easter Sunday, the day that I gave my life to Christ, it was this, this word that God spoke to my heart. If you give me your life, I'll give you mine. And how many of you know when you have the life of God in you, living through you, it's going to look like Jesus, right? It's going to look like Jesus. Dick, thank you for bringing that word.